Hi, this is Annika Fain with Northwest Fish Passage podcast. Thanks for joining me today. Northwest Fish Passage is a small strategic collaborative partnership of scientists, planners, and engineers. The focus of today's podcast episode is habitat connectivity. Today, I am here with Brian Stewart, um, a Cascades to Olympic program coordinator at Conservation Northwest, and Glenn Callis, a habitat connectivity biologist at WashDOT. Thank you both for joining me today. Thank you for having us. Yeah, it's exciting to be here. So to start with, I, I think well, a lot of people may not know much about habitat connectivity. And I know that it's an important concept in ecology, but I would love to hear from you both about what your definition is. So sure. start with Glenn. Yeah, so I think um, a pretty common definition that I've seen um, other places and that I usually apply myself is habitat connectivity is basically just the degree to which the landscape facilitates or impedes ecological features or processes. Um, in my case, mostly wildlife movement, but can also include water flow, seed and spore dispersal, um, genetic flow of all sorts, really. And you often hear it mentioned in relation to road ecology or the transportation field because the North American road system is technically the largest human artifact on Earth and often impedes many of these processes, if not planned for properly. Um, and because the field of road ecology is really quite new in the science world, a lot of these concepts weren't understood or even discovered uh, when the, the vast majority of the US and North American highway systems were built. Fortunately, understanding how to overcome these barriers associated with highways is, is an increasingly studied field. Um, and I'm proud to say that Washington State, I believe, is one of the leaders in this research and application. And that's not just because I'm a biased participant. Um, they were long before I showed up at WashDOT uh, just four years ago. And so I'm just happy to be a part of that. Thank you. Yeah, I, you know, I think Glenn has nailed it. I think a lot of what he said is, is on point. Um, I kind of look at it in sort of a, a duality. You know, habitat connectivity can be you know, the short connection that animal needs or critter or plant needs to get to, you know, viable habitat. And that can be like a fist passage, something very small that's creating a great barrier, or that can be kind of like Glenn was talking about on a landscape level when we're talking about ecological processes, the movement of floral and fauna and, and genetics and resilience and, and adaptation, and all that sort of stuff that you'll see in ecology. But I think Glenn really nailed it. You know, for me, it's, it's, it's just about making those highway connections, you know, in the natural world that processes and species need to get to where they need to get to go. Yeah. So what motivated you both to get involved in habitat connectivity? Brian, why don't I start with you? Awesome. Um, you know, it was, a, it was a sort of boring class on island biogeography <laughs> that I had a long, long, long time ago. And, uh, you know, the spark kind of went off in my head. And someone who grew up in an urban setting and really has an understanding of sort of the the impact that, you know, anthropocentric infrastructure can have on the environment that, you know, clicked right into my head that, okay, island biogeography plus city equals we need to deal with connectivity. <laughs> Somehow that's how my brain put that together. And from that really that moment on, 
I began to watch and study everything I could that was connectivity related, you know, really, you know, watching the I-90 project um, go up, watching Conservation Northwest and WashDOT do this sort of brown graking stuff for habitat connectivity and, and just really, really have found joy in trying to find a way to mitigate some of the destructive stuff, you know, we've done to, to build our civilization. And, and then on the other hand, uh, help build sort of a, a resilient landscape for critters to adapt to things like climate change and stuff like that. Thank you. Glenn, what about you? Well, I've always been interested in wildlife ecology and forests, wide open spaces and cougars, especially cougars, a uh, species that requires large swaths of connected habitat to really persist. Uh, but I'm from Kentucky, as I, I might have mentioned, or maybe you can just tell. Um, <laughs> and we don't have any cougar populations there, despite what uh, some people might claim. Really, the closest population is the Florida panther. And uh, the Florida panther doesn't, they have a lot going against them, fortunately. There are, there are also a lot of people trying to help. Um, however, one major source of mortality that's largely been rectified was wildlife vehicle collisions. So, so to answer your question, the two earliest large-scale habitat connectivity projects I ever heard about were, one, to save the Florida panther, which they've made a lot of progress on, and that's been a long time. That, that's happened a long time ago, and they're still working on it. But two was an article I read from High Country News while I was in school getting my wildlife degree called The Biggest Wildlife Crossing You've Never Heard Of, which basically outlined the ambitious Snoqualmie Pass East project goals on I-90, which fascinated me and included dozens of wildlife crossing structures. Um, to, but even beyond that, um, water structures, just everything to achieve full ecological connectivity in this really important mountain environment. And it was just such a large scale project um, being undertaken by maybe entities you wouldn't normally assume would be in charge of that, like a transportation department. Of course, there were many partners that got this done, especially like the U.S. Forest Service, Conservation Northwest, of course, and just dozens of others. But that really just fascinated me. And so when I graduated with my wildlife degree, I ended up in Washington State, um, in part because I just wanted to live out west where cougars were. I mean, seriously, that really drove where I ended up. And uh, Washington, of all the western states, just always enticed me. So luckily, I, I was able to get here found a temporary job with WashDOT as a natural resources technician three. It was a six-month position, which I was immediately drawn to uh, because it was advertised as helping to manage an array of remote wildlife cameras across the state, which just really excited me. But I don't, I don't think I even realized until a few weeks after I started working there that it was the same agency I had read about years ago while in school, which was a pretty exciting revelation. And my next question is about partnerships and collaboration. There's a lot of collaboration happening all the time, it, it seems like. Um, like I mentioned, the I-90 project is, was really unparalleled in its collaboration. And like I also mentioned, I had very little to do with that. I'm a happy participant now, but there is so many people working to shepherd that through. And I think that created a model of sorts, at least in the habitat connectivity silo at WashDOT on how to approach these projects um, outside of the Snoqualmie Pass East project area in the future. And it's always good to involve as many stakeholders as possible in the conversation as early as possible, just in general, because you really don't know 
what what kind of feelings you're working with at any one location and, until you do that. And you you may be surprised at the different ideas about connectivity in an area. And it just helps to start with an open mind and a collaboration framework. And I think to be more specific uh, on, a, on the other side of things, on the research and science side of things, not the project completion side, one of the um, coolest groups I'm a part of, and Brian is also a part of, is the Washington Wildlife Habitat Connectivity Working Group, or typically I just call it the Habitat Connectivity Working Group for short. It's a science-based collaboration designed to produce tools that identify op opportunities and priorities for habitat connectivity in Washington and surrounding landscapes. These usually end up in the form of GIS connectivity models. Uh, the, the working group is co-led by WashDOT and WDFW formally, but we, we, it's uh, such an open collaboration that that does not in any way indicate those are the people doing the bulk of the work. There, there are people from um, all sorts of land and natural resource management agencies, conservation organizations like Brian's, tribes and universities. And it is also an open group. So other interested minds are always welcome to join. And they've been together for over a decade and have produced tons of Washington state specific connectivity models, which are a big part of the work that we do at WashDOT when it comes to prioritizing important highways that overlap important habitats, I guess. Brian, can you tell me about how you work with the tribes? But yeah, so there's lots of levels like, you know, there's partnerships where, you know, we might work with the Colville tribe on Eastern Washington and do a real project where it's an actual partnership. But a lot of what, you know, we do is, is, is consulting with the tribes letting them look at our projects. You know, I think one example is WashDOT Conservation Northwest and others are looking at doing some invasive species removal and doing some native plantings underneath a um, uh, crossing structure on Highway 12 at the Satsup River. And we consulted with, right, the Chehalis tribes biologists and said, hey, um, what, what would you put here, right? What, what culturally, scientifically, what makes sense to you? And, you know, we can base our, our restoration project off of that. Um, and, and so, you know, it's, it's supporting them where we can and, and having relationships where we can. Um, and I, I think that goes both ways, right? If, if the biologists from those tribes were to, were to call me up, I would, you know, help them in any way I could. There's numerous working groups, uh, the, the Chehalis River Alliance that we, we, we work with tribes on. But, you know, even then, a lot of the times it's supporting the tribes. It's letting the tribe take the lead and then, and then kind of being there to, to help support those voices and not talking over them, you know. And so that's sort of our goal. Um, so, you know, I don't, I don't go around saying, you know, partnership, partnership that. But I will go around saying, you know, relationship, relationship that. Um, so, yeah, that's sort of my quick take. Glenn. Can you tell me how the groups at WashDOT are working together on habitat connectivity and culvert projects? I mentioned prioritization of our highway system, and I'll briefly try to describe how we do that. Um, we've basically broken the 7,000 mile plus highway system down into one mile segments, and then each one mile segment receives a rank of low, medium, high, or no rank for two separate variables wildlife-related safety, which is basically a count or a reflection of wildlife vehicle collisions within that segment or carcass removals, which are indicative of collisions, and ecological stewardship is that other attribute that's ranked. And that 
encompasses a lot more. And for instance, a lot of those products, those connectivity models I mentioned from the working group are incorporated into, the, into what we call the Habitat Connectivity Investment Priorities. That's the overarching name of those two categories. For instance, a connectivity model that says that models networks of connected habitat for multiple species could be used and we could say this one mile segment is within a quarter mile of six connected networks of habitat for different species and so that's a big deal. But on top of that we look at listed and endangered species in the area. We look at nearby blocks of protected land because we don't want to invest in expensive infrastructure if it's going to be developed or turned into a parking lot in the near future. We also evaluate forgetting a few key things, but basically this model that incorporates a lot of scientific information and ranks the highway system by one mile segments. So then we take that highway prioritization scheme and basically overlay all the planned fish barrier correction projects or fish passage projects that are upcoming over that, that those two ranking processes. And if a project falls in or adjacent to one of those one mile segments that are ranked high for either of those two categories, then it's flagged for a site visit. And as long as everything checks out there, such as we can even fit a structure in, maybe it's just a flat piece of land where you can't even put an underpass under it, that therefore we can't really do much. But assuming we can, then a memo at WashDOT is created internally and submitted to the project planners, the engineers, as early as humanly possible, because getting these design features incorporated into a, a fish passage project, it takes time. And uh, so basically we just try to then enhance structures that fall in high priority areas that are already being rebuilt for fish passage reasons, oftentimes we can make them great for terrestrial wildlife with just minor tweaks at little to no added cost to the project because we're already digging up the road, closing down the highway and doing this major major construction anyway. So at WashDOT, we, we call that a practical solution. It's a, one of those three uh, strategic goals I mentioned, inclusion being one of them, development and practical solutions. And to me, that's as practical a solution as you can get. It's a once-in-a-lifetime decision. They have a 75-year lifespan. If we're going to do it, we should do it now. And if you should do it, we can. So that's the way we kind of think about it right now. And it's, um, it's a new program that basically has only been in effect the last two or three years. So we're still growing. We're learning new ways to do it and get these recommendations through and approved. But it's been a, been a, a ride so far. And I think it's a a great thing to consider. We've had other states reach out to us and say, hey, we want to do the same type of program because it just makes so much sense. And, you know, just because I write a memo doesn't mean these things are going to get built. It just means the engineers are going to evaluate them and see what we can do if it's, if it's feasible and logical. But a lot of times so far, these scope projects have really added less than 1% of the total cost, project cost already. So it's really a no-brainer in some senses and at some locations. Mm -hmm. Okay, thank you. What is one of the most rewarding projects you have worked on or are currently working on? Boy, that's tough. Um, oh man, there's a lot of stuff I've worked on. You know, I, I have to actually think 
working with the Chehalis River Alliance, although this is sort of outside of connectivity, sort of something I'm pretty proud of right now. It's, it's just a coalition of tribes, individuals, nonprofits, and we're all sort of working to find solutions that are um, more ecologically sound than the, the proposed dam in the Chehalis. I don't know if your listeners know about that, but there is an ongoing strategy right now to reduce um, floods in the Chehalis Basin, and there's a strategy around it. Part of that strategy is a, a really cool aquatic species restoration plan. Part of it's a flood resiliency program, but the other part's a dam. And we have been working tirelessly the last six months, you know, doing legislative outreach, writing letters, um, essentially, you know, doing the small stuff and the big stuff that, you know, the, the public can't necessarily do and engage in a way they can't engage and really working with all these folks and facilitating it, uh, facilitating the meetings and being a real, I don't know, being a sort of catalyst for everyone has been super rewarding. And, you know, the best part's been all the people I've got to meet and work with and all the perspectives you get to hear. Um, that more than on the ground projects, I think is what I'm finding most rewarding, um, at least at this point. Mm-hmm. Thank you. Glenn, do you have a, a project or something you want to highlight? I think as far as projects go, I'd, I'd just say ask me again in two years. I think the um, the fish barrier, fish passage projects overlap with the terrestrial connectivity is a big part of my job I dedicate a lot of time to, but infrastructure, transportation infrastructure moves at a snail's pace from design, inception to design to construction. So it feels like we're doing a lot, but um, it it's still going to be a couple years before we see these things being completed. I'm hoping we're going to see a lot of new fish and wildlife crossing structures, quote unquote, in the future. Um, but currently, I'd say I'm I'm uh, most rewarding is working with our interns, probably, and other really enthusiastic volunteers. I'm, you know, I was a student less than five years ago, so I still remember what it was like to fight and scrape for any opportunity in the wildlife field. Um, so I, I really go out of my way to, to try, I don't know how effective I am, but to try and encourage and help anybody that's interested in connectivity from volunteers to our, to our interns, because WASHDOT, we're lucky to have um, a partnership it's with Evergreen State's MES mm-hmm. program, actually, and that's where we get our interns, and we have been for a long time, longer than I've been there. I think, I want to say 12 years, but I'm just totally guessing at that. I've only been here for but 12 sounds right, that we've had that program with Evergreen. And um, they're usually they're around for one or two years, so it's nice to get to know them, see their projects. Sometimes they'll actually do connectivity-focused projects, but not all the time. One of our students is currently uh, finishing up a master's thesis on fungi, which is really interesting and cool to have her in the field, too, and ask what every mushroom we come across is. There's a lot of them out there. Um, See, so yeah, I'd say currently that's, that's what I like the most. Because it just, it, yeah, I don't know. I just still remember when I was a student, it's, it was just hard getting your foot in the door anywhere. So, I, you know, I'll do my best to get people skills built up and ready to go. And then most likely I'll give you a, a killer recommendation as well. <laughs> That's great. In a couple of minutes, I'll ask you more about that, um, about advice to young professionals. But before we do that, I wanted to hear from both of you about what your biggest challenges you see with this work. And Glenn, I'll just start with you. 
And this one's easy. It's not very exciting. It's just funding. I mean, the building these structures is extremely expensive and we currently don't have any dedicated funding for habitat connectivity infrastructure at any level. And so that means we either need to secure outside funding or work within programs that do have funding. And when we're talking millions of dollars per locations, because that's what we're talking at, 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 you know, a minimum, you're probably looking at $2 million for a deer sized underpass. It's just, it's hard to find that money hidden in other programs or in outside grants. Yeah, you know, so there are, you know, hopes that one day we'll have dedicated funding for connectivity infrastructure. And it, it feels like maybe we will one day, but right now it's, uh, it's not a reality. And so it makes things hard. I feel like we have a lot of really solid sound scientific evidence. We, we know that we're, where the problems are, we know how to fix them. It's just money. And I think that's a problem for everybody. It's yeah. So Brian, what about you? What is, what do you see as one of the biggest challenges with your work in addition to funding? Yeah, I mean, obviously funding, right? Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, you know, there's also, there's a couple, I think there's a couple of challenges. One is sort of connectivity and road ecology is still sort of on the cusp of like really gaining understanding. And a lot of the times you run into, you know, SEPA documents being done or analysis being done and, and they leave it out or, or they, it gets omitted and, and the, the habitat connectivity portion. And so I think one challenge is getting folks to look beyond sometimes their silo and saying, let's look at what you're doing on an ecological level, or let's look what you're doing on a landscape level. And, and sometimes folks don't see that. I mean, for good reason, their training has them focused on, you know, one specific aspect of this larger picture. But I think that can be a challenge sometimes getting other researchers or other projects to see that, hey, what you're doing actually is a component of habitat connectivity, even though it may not seem like it from your perspective. And I need to get you to, to look at a higher level and kind of outside of your own work zone. That's one challenge. Then there's the other challenge of, of the public, right? Funding would be easier. <laughs> it would be easy, more easy to obtain if the public understood the benefits of a connected landscape, right? They, they understand roadkill and they understand something when it, when it affects it personally, like when they get, you know, they hit an animal, but sometimes they don't understand the entire network of things that lead to that accident on the road. And, and sometimes it's just outreach and education that needs to be done in order to sort of alleviate or mitigate that, that challenge. So outside of funding, I think it's, it's sort of outreach to everyone. That includes like scientists and researchers and people doing projects, but then also to, you know, just the community and individuals on that level too. So I think getting people to understand or getting people to see connectivity as a part of what they do and having meaning to their lives is, is a big challenge and a barrier that, you know, something we do at Conservation Northwest to try to try to try to try to make better. Thank you. Brian, what are you most hopeful about in upcoming years related to habitat connectivity? That's a good, that's good. Um, one part is that, that what I just mentioned is changing, right? Some people are starting to see the value and beginning to see their work within that, that bigger picture. So I think that's one thing I think I'm hopeful in the coming years is that the science is catching up and people are seeing the need for it. Two, I'm hoping that we have, you know, we have a nation to refund and rebuild and we have an infrastructure that's crumbling and we have people that need work. And, you know, I'm hoping that we can, you know, get politics put aside and start funding these things because 
it's going to benefit wildlife, right? A wildlife bridge in a rural area not only benefits the wildlife and the ecology, but it benefits the, the people that work there and the people that need good paying jobs. And it, it, it has this cascading effect. And so I'm really hopeful that we see projects that are on that scale that benefit, you know, a whole range of things. Um, and I'm, and I'm also, I, I think, hopeful in the coming years that, um, just getting more collaborators, right? Bringing more people to the table, talking uh, to people like you, um, finding more fish passage overlaps. Just like I'm hopeful that we're getting to that that point where people are like, hey, uh, habitat connectivity um, is, is kind of important um, and it can uh, help mitigate things and it can help make for a better environment, um, but it, it can also create jobs and, and that type of thing. So I'm hopeful that those things become part of the public uh, awareness. Thank you. Glenn, what are you most hopeful about in upcoming years? Uh, very similar, very similar things as to what Brian mentioned. I agree with pretty much all of it. Um, I do feel like even since I started in this field, it connectivity has become much more uh, clearly, it has, it has found a place in the science landscape. You hear about it a lot more. I mean, Conservation Northwest talks about it all the time. And maybe it's just because I follow Conservation Northwest, but I feel like they're, they're a pretty reliable mouthpiece for the state. And um, I think Washington State maybe is ahead of other places in their understanding of connectivity. But just besides that fact, just the number of students that we've had contacting us saying, hey, I wanna do a GIS project on connectivity, do you have data? That kind of thing has really increased um, even just in the past year or so. And so I think that's pretty heartening. It's good to see one of our, one of our really, our one really enthusiastic volunteer at the moment named Megan, she recently won first place at the Warissa GIS conference for her group's project looking at overlap between fish barriers and uh, connectivity using um, a bunch of different data similar to ours and she actually located one of the two of the same locations that WashDOT did so we set up a monitoring program at one of those and let, we're letting her manage the cameras and trying to kind of just keep her interested in the field until jobs are available because when you have really enthusiastic people that would be a great addition to the field it's it, you hate to see them just slip available jobs when they do have a passion and we do have a need for that passion right now. So um, I'm just hopeful that, like Brian said, this the idea of connectivity and its importance is catching on. We're seeing more students do work. I mean, Central Washington University, they have tons of graduate students doing I-90 work and uh, a lot of research coming out of there. And they're, so, you know, I don't know, there's a lot of cool stuff going on in that world. And I feel like if we keep these students and everybody else interested that when they become professionals, we're just going to have a lot more power. So thank you. I wanted to hear about your advice to young professionals who might be interested in habitat connectivity. Well, so, yeah, Glenn, you can go first. Just keep trying. Things are hard, especially now. But even when I applied for that six month temporary position that eventually turned into a one year temporary position and then another one year temporary position, now my permanent position as the habitat connectivity biologist, that first six month position I actually didn't get. They uh, hired an intern instead actually. And so it wasn't until a month after that that one of their, their other intern quit that they called me up and said, hey, we got a spot for you. <laughs> 
So, you know, the rest is kind of history, but it didn't seem like that was going to even be an option for a while. So, you know, keep trying, volunteer to gain experience. If you can't find paid experience, which of course is always better, if you're finding that hard to obtain, try volunteering. It, it can create great networking opportunities and uh, give you new and marketable skills. I'll never forget the Laura from the Kentucky Department of Fish and Wildlife who loaned me a telemetry receiver, an antenna. She taught me how to use them. And then she set me loose on the roads in Eastern Kentucky, tracking collared bobcats and just kind of listening for them, finding locations, triangulating, and then reporting them back to her. And that was just a dream come true for me. Just knowing bobcats were, you know, a hundred feet in the woods and I could just hear their beep. And um, that's also something I belabored at my first WashDOT interview, among other things. And I think it's still one of my better skills that I didn't get in any of my, you know, I had a, maybe a one day's worth of class on it in school, but this volunteer work, I got six months of, you know, at least once a week driving all day, you know, using telemetry. And so I think some of my more interesting skills come from my volunteer work and I still volunteer to this day. Um, I mentioned cougars a lot, probably. Um, I've <laughs> to collar cougars just so because I've always wanted to do that and I've got to help collar three different cougars with a tribe on the Olympic Peninsula and elk as well and you know a year later I'm actually in contact with the the biologist there as she's one of our cougar experts that's helping drive our cougar model that we're building with the Habitat Connectivity Working Group right now so networking is a real thing and I feel like I've met a lot of people that I now keep in touch with and just got to do some of the coolest things that I've done anywhere and I can still do it, you know. Brian, um, what's some advice to young professionals? Wow, so first I will say, you know, Glenn was talking about the MES program at WashDOT, um, doing internships there, and that's where I did one of my internships under Glenn. Um, also, I did my thesis work with WashDOT, and so as I was doing my thesis work, I was operating as a volunteer, collecting data for the agency, and so it gave me both volunteer time and I was working my master's thesis, and so that was helpful, um, you know, but it wasn't easy. I was a contractor for a year, um, which was hit and miss. Some months I'd have worked, some months I wouldn't, um, but yeah, I mean, I'm employed now, and so I think keep going at it just like Glenn says, volunteer, take the odd job if you can. Um, I think what else is important is that if you have an opportunity to take a, an undergrad or even a graduate level program that offers a thesis or some sort of scientific project that, can, that, that holds some weight, find a niche in connectivity, find a place that they haven't looked, go take the data, go figure it out and, and work with everyone in the, in the landscape. You know, I was, you know, calling WashDOT and, and calling Conservation Northwest and calling um, anyone to do interviews or talk to them about what was going on. And so showing people that you're enthusiastic and not faking it, but, you know, you have to actually be enthusiastic is a huge step in getting people to support you. But like Glenn's saying, it's a, it can be a long road. There's no habitat connectivity positions, right? So you're going to have to come into the field, do something and be essentially create a position until things change. And I will say this is an encouraging note. I think things will change as connectivity becomes more aware. I think you're going to see DFW and us fish and a lot of agencies start to have to deal with this. And so my hope is that, you know, in the next 10 years, it will be a little bit easier to get in than it is now, but yes, volunteer. Um, and yes, enjoy the work. <laughs> Thank you. Do you have any closing thoughts about habitat connectivity? 
Yeah, I mean, just in general, it's something that we should all be aware of, um, whether we're doing fish pastage, whether we're doing habitat restoration, whether we're doing um, conservation easements, whether you're working in a riparian area or an estuary, um, whether you're working on a roadway or, or in the city, right? We should all be thinking about this in a, in a larger context, not just because it's good for the environment, because it's good for um, climate change adaptation, right? It's good for all sorts of things. It's good for hunting. It's good for fishing. It's good for right, all these things that we sort of hold to be culturally good um, as Washingtonians. Um, and, and then also, you know, for our first peoples whose, whose culture has revolved around some of these things for a time immemorial, making sure they are maintained through connectivity is one way to, one way to ensure that these things are here in the future. And so that would be my note. Think about connectivity in your work, especially if you're working in a natural environment or environmental science or, or conservation and, and where does your work fit in and, and how can you think about connectivity in the context of your work? Glenn, closing uh, thoughts? Yeah, you know, I, I think Brian pretty much summed it up nicely. I'll piggyback on, on what he was saying and, and just mention that it is nice seeing like uh, the engineers at WashDOT actually think about connectivity before I even ask them to because it, it feels like a part of WashDOT's culture that is growing and oftentimes I find projects I need I know are important and I push them and push them and push them and then sometimes an engineer will contact me and say hey I've been working on this wildlife related study for a year and a half do you want to help me write a grant to build an underpass and find funds and it's it's just awesome to see because you know in the past you never would have expected the engineers of a transportation department to take the reins and say, how can we make sure this section of road is better for wildlife? But they are. And I don't think that is uh, by accident. I think it's just a part of WashDOT's culture that is growing. But it's really, really great to see um, because, like, like, you know, Brian mentioned, it is incredibly important for all people in Washington just to have that part of WASHDOT outside our environmental wing thinking environmentally, I think is a great sign. And um, it's, it's been going on for quite some time. Great, thank you. Thank you both for joining me today. Yeah, thanks for having us. <laughs> I would like to end by expressing my deepest respect and gratitude to the many indigenous peoples and tribal nations in the Salish Sea region for their enduring care and protection of our shared lands and waterways. If you liked this podcast, please write a review and subscribe. Thank you so much for listening. Have a great day.